Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode, I sit down with the legendary Sid Hale to discuss his new book, Concepts of Non-Lethal Force. Sid is a mad scientist who has decades of experience in the military and law enforcement. He's the author of several books, most notably Field Command and Sound Doctrine. He's one of the three founders of Field Command and creators of Tactical Science, a 40-hour class that distills the principles of conflict management taught at war colleges into meaningful and practical applications for law enforcement. If you ever get a chance to attend Tactical Science, I encourage you to do so. Sid, thank you for being with us today, and you just recently are releasing a book on concepts of non-lethal or less lethal technologies, and we'll explain what that that is in a minute. But for those listeners that don't know who you are and uh, don't know, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became a subject matter expert in less lethal and non-lethal technologies? I really have no background for it until I became an adult. Uh, and the real impetus, like so many other things, was idle curiosity, <laughs> for, lack, for lack of a better <laughs> term. The real thing for me was that uh, I hit the streets about the same time as PCP. And so as a result of that, everything that we had learned in the academy and everything that they gave us in those days, this is back in the 70s, became instantly obsolete because they were all pain compliant and 25 milligrams per kilogram of body weight will allow general anesthesia on a person with PCP. And so as a result, everything became obsolete. And I began studying, there had to be a better way. I mean, we were shooting people that didn't die. Uh, In 1981, I went to the hospital eight times. I had stitches and broken bones and root canals, and I can't even remember all the different things. It got to the point where I had to tell my wife when I was coming home early because she'd wake up and see me with some bandage on that I left for work on and I didn't have, and then she'd be mad because I didn't tell her. So (laughs) in the 1970s, even the term non-lethal was not common. I'm not even sure I heard it uh, until at least the 80s. In any event, uh, the technology wasn't there. And so I just studied it. It was just one of those things I read about until 1995. That was the bellwether event for me. In 1995, I got called up by the Marine Corps to provide expertise on non-lethal options for an operation in Somalia, Mogadishu, Somalia. And I don't know if anybody's ever been to Mogadishu, but I'll just tell you, If the world is ever to receive an enema, Mogadishu is where they're going to give it. I have never been at a place like that that was more dangerous, more disorganized, more chaotic, where might made right uh, than any place I've ever been in the world to include combatant zones. And I had literally a blank check. I could buy anything I wanted. It was kind of an interesting dilemma because... uh, for the first time in my life, I could literally buy anything I wanted. I had a guy that followed me around that could write checks in about 10 different currencies. And we went to the nuclear facilities and the federal laboratories, and I had sticky foam and aqueous foam and lasers, and I had all the stuff that we had for the sheriff's department. And so as a result of that, we got to try it for the first time 
to see how well things worked. And it was as I suspected. There was no technological answer. It had to be part of a, of a bigger solution, a bigger strategy and a plan. Uh, and so basically the concepts were what really started intriguing me from that time on. Now you've written several books. So what, what prompted you to write this book? Actually, I was prompted to write this book years ago, and I actually had started it three or four years ago. Uh, I had been teaching since, uh, well, 1989 on a national level and 1997 at an international level. And one of the places I was teaching routinely was at the U.S. War Colleges, uh, Army War College, Command and Staff, uh, the National Defense University, the Industrial College of the Armed Forces, and there was no text. And we couldn't find a book that provided the answers that were being asked by the students. Well, I had done this for 20 years. And so a lot of people were prompting me to fill this gap. And so I had started it. And a guy by the name of Neil Davison, who I knew from the University of Bradford in England, had written a book that I thought would fill this gap. But unfortunately, I didn't get the impression it came across to practitioners from practitioners. It was written by a researcher for other scholars. And the vast majority of the people that I was dealing with, particularly in the military and law enforcement, the ones that needed the answers most were practitioners. And so I thought that I would just sit down and write it as if we were both in the same radio car and I was a training officer. And that's what I did. Uh, and interestingly enough, that was kind of controversial when it when it finally went out for publication. It got accepted in more than one place. It was interesting in the sense that that's only the second time that it that had happened to me. Most of the time, after the first book was published, I would just go back to my original publisher. But the one thing that the other publisher objected to was the fact that I used sarcasm. Uh, well, uh, if you're in a radio car, as you know, <laughs> sarcasm is one of the ways that we deal with some of these more absurd situations. Uh, and they wanted me to rewrite it. And I said, well, no, because it's written for practitioners. And if they didn't understand that, they really didn't understand the, the practitioners. And so I wasn't willing to rewrite it. And so I went back to my original publisher who understood what I had done. And that we had had several books published by that time in which some of the things that I was doing were controversial as an author. Uh, but in this particular case, I didn't feel like I was an author as much as I was a spokesman. And I wasn't saying anything that I thought was entirely new or entirely novel. It was just simply, uh, I had an experience and knowledge that I was trying to pass on to people that were in the same position that I was. And I really wasn't interested in writing anything for somebody that didn't really have skin in the game. And needless to say, the practitioners are the ones that pay the penalties when something doesn't work, not the scholar who made his best guess based upon what he knew. And in most cases, he learned from somebody else. Well, you touch on a great point because uh, that theme is throughout your book. I think it speaks to law enforcement. As, as I read it, I actually picked up on that as well as your, uh, again, your ability to distill lessons learned 
through your military education and experience and how it translates into law enforcement. But I, I wouldn't take away the sarcasm for sure. I agree with you. It's a rough place being in a patrol car some days. Well, another thing that uh, I did that was objectionable to the other ones, I wrote it in the first person. It was written like I talked. They wanted a, a book uh, written as a scientific treatise. I didn't want to do that. Uh, I wanted to make it as easy as possible for somebody that did not want to spend the time and effort that I had in trying to find an answer for a question. But then I provided the end notes uh, with all the reference material so that if they actually needed to back it up scientifically, it was going to be there. They actually wanted me to incorporate the end notes right into the text. And again, that would have made the book a lot bigger and it would have made it harder to understand, in my opinion. Basically, I was trying to tell the time without trying to build a watch. It, <laughs> that's a great, uh, great analogy. You're, you actually do uh, break your book down into components, and I, and I like it because you immediately start off with the confusion and controversies, and then you go into a brief history. A very unusual title for chapter three is So Why Bother? <laughs> and uh, and then when you, you talk about that stuff. So if we go into the history, uh, first of all, uh, when you did your research, you talk a little bit about the common language. And you've discussed that before in your other books about how the, our profession in particularly uh, does not have a common language. And sometimes that causes us problems. In, in your research for non-lethal or less lethal, tell me a little bit about where, where your research came from and why you ended up with non-lethal or less lethal as your terms? Well, uh, it's interesting that the, the vast majority of my experience came from law enforcement, but I had a background in the military and ended up with two retirements. And so I had two parallel careers. I was a Marine Corps officer and I was a uh, police officer. And so one of the things that was complicating was is that we didn't have the same terminology. As a matter of fact, one of the things when I was in Somalia is General Zinni, who I worked for, laughed and said I was bilingual because I could translate Alpha Bravo Charlie Delta in the, in the military to Adam Boy Charles David in the law enforcement. So I was bilingual. But to be honest with you, it was, it was rough. You're right. The term has never been well-defined, and some terms have never been defined at all. I'll give you just one example as effective. What is effective? Well, if you talk to the manufacturer and they tell you that my particular device is designed to knock this guy on his butt, and I'll just use an example as the impact munitions. Well, that's great. What happens if he gets back up? Well, see, the manufacturer would like to tell you that it worked, but there's no practitioner out there that's going to tell you that if he gets back up, the problem has gone away. He doesn't think it worked at all. So even the term effective is not well-defined. The term non-lethal comes from the U.S. Department of Defense. I explained at the very beginning that law enforcement doesn't use the term non-lethal. Uh, we don't use the term, we use the term less lethal or less than lethal. I'll give you just one example of how confusing it was. And I kept trying to get them to adapt the nomenclature that was evolving from the law enforcement community and they resisted it. But one of the things that I did when I was in Somalia is I had direct access to the staff judge advocate general, a guy named uh, uh, Loftus, Colonel Loftus. I'm sorry, Colonel uh, Lorenz. Uh, I get all my colonels mixed up. 
In any event, what happened was is that he was drafting the rules of engagement. Rules of engagement were basically how these technologies were going to be used. And it's quite different from the way that it's used in law enforcement. In any event, uh, one of the stuff I had was sticky foam. Sticky foam was pretty interesting. It was developed to protect nuclear facilities. And you could literally glue a person's feet to the pavement. And the idea was that if they broke into the nuclear facility, uh, valves would open up and it would scatter this stuff all over the floor. And then when somebody tried to run down to get into uh, more secure areas, it literally would impede them from movement. And so I had some in Somalia because we had two missions. One was to separate combatants from non-combatants. And the other one was to give us a 15 minute delay between the technicals, which were combatants in any definition of the term, and ourselves so as to prevent the bloodshed. And so we got the idea that we would try to use this, this sticky foam. But it was very awkward because we were going to use it as an anti-personnel device, and it was actually designed to be used as an area denial device. And I'll come back to that in a minute, but it's one of the five roles for non-lethal options. But anti-personnel, in order to use it against an individual, we carried a way to spray it, and it comes out like foam insulation. But one of the things that Colonel Lorenz asked was, well, what happens if you shoot somebody in the face? I said, sir, why would we shoot anyone in the face? He says, well, accidents happen. I said, yes, sir, accidents will happen. He said, well, will it stick their lips shut? I said, oh, yes, sir, it'll stick their lips shut. He goes, well, then they'll die. I said, yes, sir. That's why we don't call it non-lethal. I say that because that, that was the genesis of a number of discussions that went along these lines because it had never been defined. And so I was having to not only explain why the, my preferred definition, but also how it worked. So we were in ex explaining not only the concept, but the tactics, techniques, and procedures of how to employ it. In some cases, we were hypothetical because it had never been employed. And that was the case of sticky foam. So what happened was in 1996, the Department of Defense says, you know what, we cannot go down this same pathway as law enforcement. And they chose to use the term non-lethal. And they said, we know that it's not entirely descriptive. We know that it's not adequate. And we know that it's not going to be universally accepted. But at least it will get everybody in the Department of Defense on the same page. And they were right. And they wrote a memo to that effect. And so everybody in the Department of Defense uses the term non-lethal. But here, because I was in both communities, I was using the term non-lethal and less lethal and less than lethal. And I got to tell you, those are only three of the many terms. And so what happened was, is because I taught, for the most part, internationally, particularly with the Department of Defense, I just arbitrarily adopted their standard, even though I had some problems with it. So, but I got to tell you that I've got problems with the other two as well. <laughs> but for all intents and purposes, they're all synonyms. There's not enough differences in between, and it's never been uh, adequately defined as to distinguish one from the other. So, Sid, tell me a little bit about the history of less lethal technologies and what, and what you learned in your research. Actually, this is one of the chapters that I had thought about leaving out entirely, since it really doesn't give you uh, an individual 
uh, a greater ability or understanding of how to use it. The reason I included it was I kept getting asked, <laughs> where does this come from? Where did the idea come from? The other thing too is it helped identify some of the issues, the conceptual issues that were gonna prevent some devices from ever being effective. And a lot of it came just because of the research that I had been doing. A lot of the stuff initially I got out of the US government library. I actually went to the library in Los Angeles and I would order, oh, a couple hundred dollars worth of books at a time. Uh, there was no in the 70s, as you know, well, maybe you don't know, but uh, for those of us old enough to remember the 70s, we didn't have the internet. Uh, we didn't even have email. We didn't even have computers. Everything was in hard copy. And so when I started looking for stuff that was subject matter specific, it exceeded the ability of the local libraries. And so I had to go to the government bookstores. And in some cases, I'd end up buying a book just for a chapter. Uh, or in some cases, just for some comments. In any event, uh, a lot of this stuff I had accrued over the time. And so when I was teaching it, I had the ability of explaining where the concepts first originated. The big thing was, is that when I wrote the book, I had to define what would meet the modern definition. And so a lot of the things that had happened in the past that would were considered non-lethal uh, in reality, would not meet the modern definition. Now, I'll tell you, this becomes important because one of the things that I've found myself doing is defending a lot of the concepts, and some of them was quite surprising. For just some examples, as I was on everybody's hate list, I'm probably still on their hate list, but uh, not as much as I used to be, but uh, some were surprising. The ACLU uh, hates pepper spray. Amnesty International hates lasers. Well, I take it back. Amnesty International hates tasers. Human Rights Watch hates lasers. But one of the ones that was surprising was the International Committee of the Red Cross. And they hated the whole concept entirely. And the reason they did is that because we were using it to enhance the effects of lethal force. I mean, this really became controversial when I got back from Somalia. Now, the interesting thing is we had undoubtedly saved lives. There was no question about it. But one of the ways that we had decided to separate combatants from non-combatants was to target non-combatants with non-lethal options. Uh, well, this is controversial. What had happened was is the technicals would drive innocents, especially women and children in front of them, to close the standoff distance between the opposing forces. And this would tremendously negate our ability uh, to use lethal force, because we would not target the, the innocent people. Well, needless to say, that increased the, the risk to our troops. And so we talked about using sting balls and pepper spray and uh, impact munitions. Well, the objection to that, the International Committee of the Red Cross had, and legitimately so, based upon the laws, was that we were targeting non-combatants, which is a violation of the Geneva Convention. So as a result of that, uh, I had to go back in time and explain some of the concepts. And the bottom line was, and that's we're still in this situation in many cases today, is that the laws have not kept up with the technological process. But we can trace legitimate uses of non-lethal options that would meet every definition by today's standards 
back to a thousand years BC. So, and I don't know how much detail you want to go in, but I'll be glad to give you some examples. Give us a couple of examples. I found them to be uh, a pretty unique, and it made me really think about that not all non-lethal options involve weapons. Yeah, that's a that's a big one. Uh, that was. Uh, one of the reasons that law enforcement, and particularly I have encouraged it, is that we don't call them weapons. We call them options because you can use water as a weapon. And I'll come back to that later. But one of the things that the, the Romans did after the defeat of Carthage in the Punic Wars is that they burned the city and then salted it to prevent the, uh, the crops from coming back and to deprive the city from making a comeback. Well, technically... That sounds non-lethal, but to be honest with you, uh, I think the only reason that they used that was they didn't have a better option. The other thing too, it was intended to make it permanent and all non-lethal options on a modern definition, regardless of what definition you choose, uh, are temporary. They're not intended to be permanent. So it would not meet the, the modern definition. But some of the other things, uh, for instance, they put down a, a peasant revolt in China uh, by using ground up pepper. Now, very similar to our pepper spray, but the only difference was it was a particulate matter and they would blow it uh, or disperse it and use that. And that worked fairly well, apparently, because it made history. But if you go to the Japanese instead of the Chinese, they used it to incapacitate or debilitate rather an opponent so that they could make their lethal force more effective. And therein is the problem. So what is a non-lethal option? For one thing is, it's not a weapon per se. One of the things that happened when I got back from Somalia is I got called literally all over the world. And one of the meetings I had was to the army colonel that was taking a regiment, a brigade, to the Balkans. I had not been to the Balkans until that time, but I was briefing on how successful the options had proven in Somalia. And so as I'm briefing this colonel, he had basically requested all the non-lethal options that we had available since they were already purchased from the Marine Corps for the Army to be used in the Balkans. And so when I said uh, and mentioned that, I said, sir, that's not going to work. And he goes, what do you mean it's not going to work? It worked in, in Somalia. I said, sir, Somalia was a tropical climate. People were very lightly dressed. It's very mild temperatures. Not so in the Balkans. That's a temperate climate. And people wear heavy clothing and winter coats. And I said, to be honest with you, sir, a heavy winter coat is the functional equivalent of body armor for most non-lethal impact munitions. And all of a sudden, it was like the light went on. And he goes, you're right, you're right. I said, but sir, there's other things you can do. And he says, for instance, I says, well, sir, for one thing you can do is, is use water. Water doesn't work in Somalia because it's not even mildly discomforting. <laughs> but when it's 12 degrees out and you spray them with water, it's more effective than CS gas, tear gas. Uh, you can spray people with it and they'll go to great lengths to avoid it. And it doesn't even affect the environment. Moreover, if it lands on the ground and freezes on the ground, which is colder than the air, it becomes an anti-traction de uh, device and can work as an area denial device. And all of a sudden he realized that there were other options, but how would you define water as a weapon? And that was one of the reasons and one of the examples that I use often is, is that we shouldn't be calling these things weapon 
unless that's the only thing they can be used for. In many cases, we've adapted other devices to be used in a non-lethal role. And before I leave this area, let me just at least mention the five roles for non-lethal. The first one is anti-personnel, which I've already mentioned. Everybody sees non-lethal force in an anti-personnel role as synonymous. In reality, that's only one role. It's for sure the most popular for the simple reason is, is that it's also the most versatile. If you can stop a person from doing something, you can stop him from driving a car. You can stop him from getting in a boat or flying an airplane. Well, there it becomes an anti-mobility device. And anti-mobility is another role for non-lethal. Another uh, example is, is that if you can stop him from entering an area or leaving an area, like a prison or a prisoner of war camp or a, a jail, it becomes an area denial device, which is another role, but it's not anti-personnel. The other two are primarily for military applications, and those are anti-materiel and anti-infrastructure. Anti-materiel are things that they need to operate, gasoline and food and water and sleep and rest and things like that. And anti-infrastructure is shutting down systems, communications and education and criminal justice and mobility and things like that. Needless to say, uh, the first three are nearly exclusively the ones that, that we would choose, although the military has applications for the other two. That speaks to a theme that you have throughout your book, and that is nothing is inherently lethal or non-lethal about an object. You do discuss the critical difference for leaders to recognize uh, the differences between your adversary's ability to resist in a person's will. And what did you mean by that when you talk about that as we measure the effectiveness of our less lethal options? When you're dealing with a non-lethal force option, uh, it is far more complex than when you're dealing with a lethal force option. A lethal force option can actually defeat a person's ability to resist. This is important because there is no non-lethal force option that we have currently available that'll do that. Taser's pretty close. Uh, tasers uh, routinely return effectiveness results, and I'll come back to that since I just said that there was no good definition for effectiveness, but well within the 90th percentile, meaning that more than nine times out of 10, it's per, uh, it works. So we have to have some idea of what we mean by effective. And there's more than one definition. But generally, most agencies would consider a use of force effective if they didn't have to revert to some other type of force to solve the problem. So if you shoot a person more than once with the same device, we would still consider it effective if we didn't have to transition to some other type of device. So far, the only thing that we can absolutely say will incapacitate somebody uh, is a lethal force. Uh, we kill them <laughs> or we blow their arm off or their leg. Uh, well, needless to say, that regardless of how determined they are to prevail, prevents them from achieving their goals. So that's the first thing to understand. There is no non-lethal option currently available that incapacitates. They all debilitate. So the, the first thing that we need to understand is, is that 
That means that there's a threshold for non-lethal options. I'm sorry, for lethal options, but a window of opportunity or a window of vulnerability for a non-lethal option. And I'll come back to, well, let me just explain that. The threshold for lethal options is usually called the maximum effective range. Anything short of that maximum effective range, we can expect the effects to be effective. I'm, I'm trying not to use that word, but uh, to include lethality. I mean, if we're tending to kill somebody, it's not going to be less uh, effective at shorter ranges. The problem comes when you add non-lethal because we're trying to leave them alive. Not only are we trying to leave them alive, we're trying to leave them without scarring or mutations or permanently disabling. Uh, and so as a result of that, there are two ranges that we need to be concerned with. The first one is the same, the maximum effective range, beyond which we cannot realistically attribute the same degrees of effectiveness. Short of that though, there's a minimum safety range. And that's the, the closer threshold. Short of that, especially with impact conditions, we can kill them or cause permanent damage. And as a result of that, it creates this, this area, this window of vulnerability, which we call a sweet spot. The problem uh, for practitioners is, is that most of the time, we don't get to pick our ranges. We inherit these situations. We did not design them. And so as a result of that, we do injure people, even though it's accidental. So it's far more complex a problem. And that was one of the reasons that I added an entire chapter just on injuries, because everybody's focused on injuries as the type of injury. When in reality, we need to know who's responsible for what type of injury and how to avoid it. And that is conceptual. Yeah, it's a, I would say that's the topic of the day right now, right? The injuries sustained from the variety of uh, less lethal options, in particularly impact devices. And I, I thought it was very appropriate. I don't know if we really talk about it under those terms when we review our uses of force. We, we always talk about effectiveness, but we're really judged on effectiveness and safety. Yes, exactly. As a matter of fact, if you really want to use the conventional definitions for non-lethal force, uh, it has to be safe to be effective. It's part of the inherent characteristics. If it was effective, but it was not safe, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't meet the modern definition of non-lethal. Now, you you mentioned uh, just to transition a little bit. You mentioned that Operation. Uh, United Shield, correct? The Somalian Rescue Operations. Yes. What What were the lessons that you learned uh, there? And you mentioned one of them with just the uh, technicals using uh, civilians or innocents uh, t for standoff. But what were some of those lessons that you learned there? And, and how do you see those same challenges being played out today? And particularly uh, here in uh, 2020, as uh, the majority of our... Uh, at least in California, the majority of our larger cities are uh, engulfed in violent protests. Needless to say, uh, I wrote for days on the after action on this. And so there's no way I could be even comprehensive on the number of lessons learned. 
but I'll just give you a couple of one. You can explore whichever ones you want. First of all, no matter how mild of a force you're going to use, it's not going to be pretty. Somebody is always going to get hurt. Somebody's always going to object. So as a result of that, there is no way of being effective and being pretty at the same time. Second thing was, is that, in fact, I actually closed my after action report with this, is that law enforcement has the experience, but the military, the Department of Defense has the, the money, the financing. So what happened was, is that we needed to marry the two together. And the Marine Corps actually did that. And so did Congress by developing this group called the Joint Non-Lethal Weapons Directorate, which is in Quantico. And interestingly enough, the directorate ship was awarded to the Marine Corps. Now, that is a lot more significant than most people realize for the simple reason is, is that the Marines have never had a non-lethal role until General Zinni in 1995. But for a group that prided themselves on being the most lethal in the world on the battlefield, they adapted and endorsed uh, the use of non-lethal options to solve problems which had traditionally required lethal force. It's always run by a Marine Corps colonel and uh, it's always joint. There's members from all the services in that directorate and that's who I ended up working for. The other thing is the Marine Corps didn't even have a research lab. Uh, we relied on the Navy and the Army for our research. But as a result of that, we actually got not only a research lab, but a warfighting laboratory. In fact, Penn State has been performing in that role uh, for decades now. So those were two of the big lessons. But some of the other things were, uh, one of which validated something that I had suspected, is that we don't have the technology, including lethal technology, to solve all of our problems. It's going to have to be part, force being a component of a far richer and deeper plan than just uh, applying force repeated as necessary. And so that proved to be true. The other thing is, is that we also noticed is that there was a difference between the members of the mob, and this is important because we distinguish it between protesters, which we believed, even though they weren't protected under the US Constitution, that they enjoyed the same category of rights, even though they were under our own rules of engagement in which we engaged them. It was basically rules that we were imposing on ourselves without the constitutional requirements. But what happened was is that there were members of a mob that uh, were highly committed uh, to the point of uh, being martyrs. Uh, but there were also people that just happened to be there. And in some cases, especially in Somalia, they were people that were there involuntarily. And so as a result of that, one of the things we needed to identify was the high value targets in the mob. Not everybody needed the same amount of force to achieve our tactical objectives. And so we started doing a lot of studies with sociologists and people that had studied mobs. Some of the ones that come to mind that really changed my way of thinking was Dr. Clark McPhail, who is a sociology out of the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, Dr. P.A.J. Waddington, who was also known named Tank, uh, was uh, a British police officer, but he was also a Ph.D., and he taught at the University of Reading. They, together, had been studying mobs and crowds and riots 
for a long time. And that was fascinating because they particularly were interested in the situations in Ireland because it was highly predictable during the marching season. And as a result of that, uh, I had watched a TV thing, I think you probably know about it, called the Storm Watchers. And I wrote a paper for the Joint Non-Lethal Weapons Directorate on how we needed to do the same thing that to understand tornadoes that the Storm Watchers were doing, and that is go watch riots. And so it, uh, I, I guess I, I could say it provided both the focus and the impetus to travel around the world and watching the hotspots to see how they worked. And so I got called in to meet with our undersheriff, Jerry Harper, uh, who basically redirected my career. He basically sat me down. I was a lieutenant at the time. I was working Emergency Operations Bureau, which does the big uh, operations like the earthquake and the riots and the floods and the fires and the uh, 94 Olympic, I'm sorry, 94 uh, World Cup soccer and the 84 Olympics. I'm just going on and on, but big, big operations. And I was quite happy there. <laughs> but he said uh, that if you could do this for the Marine Corps, you can do this for the Sheriff's Department. And he sat down, he had, a, he had two pages of notes on legal pads, and he basically redefined what I was going to be doing for the Sheriff's Department. Uh, and I got real quiet. I mean, he's way over my head in uh, in rank, uh, and it wasn't my position, nor was it made. Uh, was there any idea that I could object, even if I wanted to? And so he said, uh, as I got quiet, he goes, "I know you don't like this, and I don't particularly care." <laughs> and I laughed, <laughs> and. Uh, it was interesting because we kind of brokered an agreement with the Marine Corps. They would send me and the Sheriff's Department would give me the time off. And I got to tell you, I objected to that for probably six or eight months. I fought it every which way I could. I did not want to give up a job I loved to basically fill in what I thought was a career path ender. I didn't see myself ever being promoted into any kind of leadership. And I was already in management by that time. So I didn't really see this as career enhancing. But I got to tell you. Uh, it provided me an education that I couldn't have bought with any amount of money. They sent me to uh, Haifa and Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and Dublin and, and Belfast and Mostar and Sarajevo and uh, Sydney and uh, Seoul, Korea. I couldn't even begin to tell you the places I went. And I got to see how they were approaching these same problems. Well, needless to say, uh, because we had already started approaching it from the sociological standpoint, I was not only seeing it, I was also sensing the frustrations. And that was really one of the driving forces of why eventually I said we needed a book from practitioners to practitioners, not from scholars to practitioners and not from practitioners to scholars, but written from a guy that was there and experiencing it firsthand and suffering the consequences of failure to another person who had the identical same role, even though it was in a different area, and in many cases, even a different culture. So as a result of that, I started taking notes, and I ended up with hundreds and hundreds of pages of notes. I debriefed the uh, Yonsei University riot in Seoul, Korea, the Sydney Mall bombings. I uh, went to Ireland. Uh, in fact, at some point in time, uh, well, one point in time, I was in Dublin uh, speaking at an international conference, and they protested against me specifically. 
Uh, and this was the, uh, the Omega Group, which is a very militant arm of the Human Rights Watch. Uh, they called me a pain merchant and a pain, uh, basically that I was profiting from other people's misery. It was not true, but it had a lot of in uh, interest for me because I got to watch a protest that was specifically oriented on me. I had police protection at the time, and I actually snuck out of the hotel in Dublin. I knew they didn't know me by name. They just had, had heard about me. And so I went out with my camera and took pictures I tried to get my, my name and picture on signs and stuff that they were carrying, but when I teach riot and crowd control, especially when I was at the war colleges, I had pictures of my own personal protest. Uh, it was enlightening. Uh, it was fascinating, in fact. But what had happened was is that it broadened my horizons immensely, much more than I could have ever gotten by following the conventional paths for training in the United States. As just one example, tasers are highly controversial in the United States, but it's like God's gift to the Brits. And yet impact munitions, which are largely acceptable in the United States, are highly controversial in Britain. And so as a result, a lot of these things were cultural. And so I would ask questions like, how do you tell an Irish Catholic from an Irish Protestant? And I remember the guy that I was talking to, I'll use his first name, Seamus. Seamus goes, why? Do you want to hate them too? And I go, well, if, if I hate them, how do I tell you guys apart? And he laughed. He says, well, I'll tell you, mate. He says, you're never going to see a Protestant named Seamus. And then he spent about 30 minutes telling me all the different ways how they could recognize each other. And I did the same thing in the Balkans. How do you tell a Macedonian from a Kosovo, from a... Bosnian, from a Croatian, from a Serbian, and I just went on and on. And they would tell me. And then when I went to Israel, how do you tell a Palestinian from an Israeli? I mean, to us, they look exactly the same. It was fascinating. Every single person I talked to had detailed information, which they could not only confidently, but in some cases conclusively distinguish things that were largely motivational, that were ephemeral, that were no way that you could be able to see by their dress, by their language, by their posture. Uh, and I ended up writing a paper on that, which again went global. And it was just one of the things that I surprised. It wasn't that I was such a great scholar, but I was trying to answer questions that everybody else had not even asked yet. Uh, so I had two papers that I enjoyed, well, two or three, uh, that I know of that went global in the sense that they actually gave me the copies of the manuscript translated into other languages. So I got the opportunity to work the last third of my career in both the law enforcement uh, role and in the military role. And I ended up working as a consultant in court, uh, as a speaker at conferences, including international conferences, uh, eventually, I got asked to be consultants for uh, technical companies, and uh, I pinch myself when I'm talking about this because I got to tell you, uh, my background when I joined the Marine Corps at 18 years old was as a farmer in a small rural area in Michigan. And when I joined the Marine Corps, I had my first bus ride, my first plane ride, my first taxi ride. I stayed in my first hotel. I saw my first movie. 
And now I was speaking at an international level and people were willing to pay hundreds of dollars an hour, in many cases, thousands of dollars just to get me to appear. And in return for that, I would ask, okay, I want to go to uh, talk to somebody about the Yonsei University riot. And so I got assigned two detectives and watch videos. The same thing what happened when I went to Jerusalem and they assigned me uh, a handler. At one point in time, uh, they took me in to see the cameras and I had a camera with me and I said, oh, can I get some pictures? And I picked up my camera and somebody runs over, no, 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 no photographs, no photographs. I said, oh, okay, okay. So I set the camera down and somebody came over and talked to him and I have no idea what they said because they were speaking in uh, Hebrew. And he comes back, he says, uh, he, he was my handler. He says, no, no, I have been told that you can take any pictures you want. Uh, and so I got access to information that was not only not available to anybody else, but it was actually prohibited from being put in the public domain, except as part of my education. So as a result of that, uh, it stimulated me finally to write this book. And I got to tell you that I'm glad this book is coming out when it came out, uh, is coming out, uh, which is October 20th. But in reality, uh, it's almost two years old. Uh, it takes that long for a book like this to get through the fact-checking process and the reading and editing process and the publishing process. So it really was finished early in 20, 2019. So, You know, you bring up a point that's been pretty consistent as uh, someone who had the the privilege to be in uh, the Cato Strategic Leadership Program. Uh, I noticed the common theme amongst all the just incredible individuals that I got to meet in that program is the, that common theme you mentioned in your life too. Like you didn't, you didn't have a linear path and said, hey, this is the opportunity that I'm going to go get. You, you did the best you could. You prepared yourself for an opportunity and uh, you didn't even recognize it as a life-changing opportunity until you were probably halfway into it. Yeah, matter of fact, it's probably even longer than that. I was not sharp enough to recognize how how good I had it. The strategic leadership project uh, is one of the things that I hope will end up being my legacy, even though the only thing that I provided was the idea. The guy that really put it together uh, was Phil, uh, Phil Myers. Uh, he took my vision and really made it happen. What what happened was is that uh, myself, R.K. Miller, Tim Anderson, Bob Benton, I'm trying to think of somebody else, Scott, were at uh, a demonstration for some technology, and we were just standing around waiting, uh, and we got to talking, and I had mentioned that one of the things that I had benefited from in my career was the fact that I had role models, Mike Hillman and Ron McCarthy and Tim Anderson and Dick Odenthal. I mean, these people were fountains of information, but nothing was written down. And I said, if you really think about it, we are the last generation that is going to be able to talk to the, the John Coleman's and uh, the people that had actually pioneered this. I said, if I could do one thing, it was to make this next generation which was literally going to be the ones in charge when these older guys died. And Phil got so excited, he wrote it up. And I got to tell you, the planning was entirely attributable to him. 
to the point we had to present it in front of the board. And I gave him about a 50-50 chance, maybe, and maybe that was even uh, conservative, maybe a 40-60 chance uh, of being able to sell this concept to the board. But it was based on my own experiences that where I even got the idea because I had benefited in ways that I could never have imagined, nor even if I had known ahead of time, would have been able to plow the pathways to make these people available to be my mentors and uh, and for me to be a protege in areas which in many cases were classified. When I got to the War College as an instructor, it was a lot of the stuff that I was saying was classified. And I kept asking, what can I say? What can I not say? They said, say whatever you need to say, because this is a classified class. Nothing's going to leave this. And I said, boy, it just goes against everything I believe if I, as an instructor. <laughs> and so what happened was, is I can remember getting in some conversations where my handler would simply shut the door and flip the sign, the classified sign. But as it went on and we became more and more in the public domain, uh, there were less and less areas that were classified. Now there are still a few, but by and large, everybody is hunting the Holy Grail. They're looking for that magic bullet. And that was another one of my chapters. It's kind of ironic in the sense that we don't know what the magic bullet, the perfect non-lethal option is gonna look like, but we do know what it does. And as a result of that, we have the standards by which to compare it without the technology that's going to fulfill this, this gap. Well, and I see uh, as a byproduct of the, the controversies uh, that law enforcement is uh, embroiled in throughout the nation is some investment in that technology here in the near future. So I think the next five years we'll see some pretty significant uh, advancements in that technology because uh, I believe in your book, I forgive me, I can't remember the time frame, but we've had no real advancement for many, many years. I th I'm hoping that this current situation, as bad as it is from our perspective, is actually the springboard for getting the things that we really want. This is what the military calls an operational capability gap. We need to do something and we don't have the ability to do it. And we can identify that. Uh, the frustrating thing is, is that there's almost no R&D going on in the Department of Justice as far as non-lethal. Now, let me explain by what I say that because that's gonna be controversial, especially by politicians who are gonna say, we spend millions of dollars developing non-lethal. What happened was, is that in the year 2000, I got sent to the FBI National Academy. I loved it. It was one of the best experiences in my law enforcement career. Uh, as a matter of fact, I signed up for so many things that my counselor sat down and eliminated about a quarter of them simply because he said there was not enough hours in the day and studying is not the only reason you're here. We want you to, to network with a lot of people. And that true was also important. But one of the things that happened to me while I was there is that the Marine Corps found out I had been assigned to Quantico and was no longer available for service back in California. And then they transferred me to the Joint Non-Lethal Weapons Directorate. <laughs> and the colonel that was in charge of that was a blessing. Uh, I can remember reporting for work on a Saturday and he would say, okay, go to the Marine Corps University, which was uh, on, on the, uh, about, oh, I'd say a mile away and study anything you want. 
<laughs> and I would, it was like throwing Briar Rabbit into the Briar Patch. I studied the Kerner, Comort, the Kerner Report, the, the Webster Commission, the Christopher Commission, and the riots. I looked at temperature and precipitation and main players. I mean, it was an unbelievable experience. And that's what I ended up writing another paper on. But the, the thing that was really interesting was the fact that I could pursue my own interests and, and study these things at a scientific level. It was a blessing. Sid, you mentioned while you were at the FBI National Academy, you were also part of the non-lethal uh, weapons directorate. Again, this seems like you were fortuitously in the right place at the right time to combine those two experiences. Yeah, yeah that's a good way of describing it too. For, for one thing is, is that I got to do research at the Joint Non-Lethal Weapons Directorate that would benefit my papers that I had to turn in for the FBI National Academy. And one of the things that I had to do for a futures class that I chose to do my paper on was the amount of money that the Department of Justice was spending as compared with the Department of Defense. And so what happened was, is that I had access to the Library of Congress through both of the uh, institutions. And I looked up at the, the budget. Now, keep in mind that I've gone, uh, I was going there in 2000. So this has been 20 years ago. And I'm not sure, well, I'm positive the figures aren't the same, but I'm pretty sure that the concept is the same. And what I discovered was, is that when I tried to compare the amount of money spent by the Department of Justice uh, compared with the Department of Defense on developing non-lethal force options, my Excel spreadsheet would not even change the color of the bar for the Department of Justice as compared to the Department of Defense. And as you already mentioned, as, uh, as I already mentioned, that when I left Somalia on my after action report, I said law enforcement has all the experience, but the Department of Defense, the Marine Corps, has all the, the money. And so what happened was, is that I decided to go back and, and trace this money. And here's what I discovered. The part of the Department of Justice that explores police technologies called the uh, National Institute of Justice, and it's the Office of Science and Technology. Now, if you look at the Department of Justice, they had at that time a budget of a quarter of a billion dollars. That's a B, a billion dollars, $250 million, of which half of that was already tied up just in administration costs with buildings and people and salaries and, and all those other things. Of the remaining $125 million, they had to be divided between 19 projects. And at that particular time, DNA was really sucking up a lot of the money and for good cause. But what I really discovered was the fact that about $2.1 million was indeed being used to develop better technologies for non-lethal force. But here's the irony. It allows politicians to be able to say that they're spending millions of dollars on the development of non-lethal force options, truthfully, and yet it represents less than 1% of their budget. And that was what really struck me, was the fact that it was political doublespeak. There was not the political will to go ahead and develop in some of these things. I ended up sitting on a lot of national committees uh, before I retired. And one of the things that we had asked for many, many times was tell us what these things are doing. 
whether you realize this or not, a lot of the non-lethal force technologies are fielded in law enforcement community without scientific testing. And that's one of the principles that I bring out in the book. The standard is not perfection. The standard is the alternative. You don't have to give us a perfect non-lethal option. Just give us better than anything that we're using. In many cases, what we're using is lethal. So the, the bar is pretty low. And as a result of that, uh, where the military will study this stuff to, to the nth degree and take years before it's fielded, we are getting field data right out of actual usages. And that was one of the things that I saw that could be leveraged. For instance, you're not allowed to do a study on a person that's under the influence of PCP, but yet that's a very common target for non-lethal force in law enforcement. Uh, what happens when we have somebody that is emotionally distraught? How do you recreate that in a laboratory? But yet that's exactly what we experience in law enforcement. And as a result of that, one of the things that I noticed was is that we had two different types of adversaries. One adversary for the military, for instance, was predominantly male, almost exclusively male. Uh, they were well-trained, in good physical condition. Uh, they were physically fit. Not so in law enforcement. Our adversaries are male and female, big and small, under the influence of drugs, infirm, well. Uh, and so as a result of that, there was no size small fits all. And that stimulated an entire part of my research. And in fact, I use uh, the sweat curve in my book to explain why the, the development of a truly safe and truly effective non-lethal option is so difficult. But what, to your original question, that's to the advantage is, is that I had the ability of having access to the information I needed and being able to spend the time that was necessary to answer the questions that I thought should have been being asked. Now, here we are in 2020, and only now are we getting to the area where we're actually tracking force. Uh, before then, it was only tracked as lethal force, and even then, it was pretty haphazard. But now we've got many states that are requiring the participation at a national level, and the FBI has been the leader in this. Uh, I couldn't say enough good things about them. They have taken a far more scientific approach to handling law enforcement problems than even some of our most progressive agencies. And they are now becoming the, the broker of gathering all this data. And I think within the next 24 months or so, we'll start seeing the fruits of this. Uh, everything from whether taser works better than pepper spray to ranges. What's really interesting is, is that in law enforcement, we gather data that would meet any demands of the scientific community. And matter of fact, it exceeds those from bona fide researchers. What happens is, is that we encounter a situation where the person is under the influence or emotionally distraught, or in some cases, just, I don't want to say the word, but arbitrary. <laughs> uh, Very true. Good point. <laughs> keep trying to keep this at a G level. <laughs> but what happens is, is that there's just some people that aren't going to go along with the program. Uh, we've known that for years. The Marine Corps calls it the 10%. They either don't know or don't care. But either way, they're going to be opposed to the general trend. And what happens is, is that we document that. We, we document the force that we use, where it hit, the effects on it. 
Uh, and then we get the anthropomorphic characteristics from the booking slips, whether it was a male or a female, big or small, whether they were injured, what the clothing they were wearing, what the temperature was, how long uh, they were uh, involved. And then we obscure it in a million other reports and lose the statistical value. Well, what happens is, is that now we're finally going to be able to say, well, you know what, under these conditions, uh, we would recommend that you use a impact munition because uh, it doesn't take the level of provocation for lethal force and you don't have to close with your adversary and get stabbed or hit with a club or something like that. Uh, that's never been scientifically available to us before that. And so as a result of that, it was just one of those things in my life where I recognized the opportunity and seized it. And literally, not only did I live there for three months, I ended up going back on a number of occasions for weeks at a time. And basically, I was just given my head and pursued my own interests. And out of that came uh, multiple papers and uh, and lots of, lots of parts of this book. So... Uh, we're glad you had that opportunity. That's a lot of studying, a lot of volume of information. It was actually a labor of love. Uh, it's like throwing briar rabbit into the briar patch. First of all, the colonels that were in charge, and there were two in the periods of time that I worked there, Colonel Himes and Colonel um, Fenton, at that time that would literally give me general command guidance without the instructions of how to go about achieving it. One of which was to find out something like on how, how crowds become mobs. Is there an evolutionary effect, uh, evolutionary meaning evolving effect on behaviors and actions that will go from peaceful to violent? And it turns out there was. Does weather have an effect? Does time of day have an effect? It was fascinating. And so as a result of that, I ended up writing a, a paper, one of which, that this is another one that went global, that we eventually called Athena's Champions. Athena was the Roman goddess of war. And she was also the goddess of wisdom. And that's one of the reasons we called it Athena's Champions. It, we don't get to pick these situations. And law enforcement is in the same boat. But in some, well... In many cases, a call for service comes from a citizen without any training whatsoever, but recognizing the behavior of some individual as requiring some type of intervention to prevent injury, either from themselves, uh, to themselves, or to someone else. And so as a result of that, I literally got to explore and talk to people in other cultures, other countries, and I don't even know how many police agencies. There are 17,800 local law enforcement agencies in the United States. And conservatively, I'm just going to have to guess and say that I've been at nearly a thousand of them. Which is a lot of mileage. So back to the book a little bit, you talk about the advantages to non-lethal weapons and what they have over our lethal weapons. And while some of that may be common sense, I thought that the way you outlined six of them, which some of which we've already covered today in our conversation, but would you care to expand on a couple more of those for those? I don't want you to give away your whole book, but maybe talk a little bit about it. Well, first of all, don't worry about giving it away because if it was up to me, I would give it away. <laughs> I would make it free. Publisher actually owns it, but it's not a plot. And as a result of that, I hope it becomes a textbook. 
But one of the questions I got asked, especially from the Marine Corps, was why should I be interested in non-lethal options? While I was in Somalia, well, keep in mind, this is very controversial, is that one major came up to me and he said that I was out of line from the Marine Corps that he had joined. Uh, Interesting enough, I had more combat and more time in service than he did. But he did make a good point, is that the Marine Corps had never looked at non-lethal option. He said that the force option scale for the Marine Corps went from M16 to F16. There was no intermediate options. Uh, It was how many people we could kill and how fast we could do it. And as a result of that, he's right. So I ended up having to not only convince the students at the war colleges that there was a place for non-lethal force in operations that had historically required lethal force, but they also had to convince them that they were better off for having this capability than not. I will try and give you these, although uh, this is going to be a little condensed version. But the first one is is that we were going to Somalia to extract the UNISOM personnel. The Bangladeshis, the Pakistanis, and the Italians were still there. Uh, And it was a lethal situation. And we were trying to get them out without having to kill people. So the first thing is, is that I will just tell you that non-lethal options are more humane. How do you justify killing the people you're sent to protect on a non-combatant operation. And so the first thing is, is that non-lethal options make a case for humanity. We're trying to save their life. A second advantage is that the non-lethal options are actually allow a commander to exert more influence rather than less on a situation. What happens is, is the level of provocation to justify the use of lethal force is usually quite high and it's accompanied by a substantial amount of risk. Once that threshold is crossed, there's not a lot of maneuver room. It goes right back to what that major saying. Uh, We're going to have to kill them, and we're going to have to be effective and professional about that, and to the degree as possible, even surgical. But what would happen if we had the ability of doing the same thing without killing them? And so as a result of that, we don't have to wait to that level of provocation and we don't have to accept that additional risk. And so a commander that understands this can use force like a rheostatic switch and turn it up and turn it down in the same operation rather than a regular switch where it's on or off. So as a result of that, it allows a commander a lot more maneuver room to actually shape the battle space so that maybe lethal force won't even be necessary. Another thing is, is that non-lethal force uh, is less likely to provoke people. Uh, Our own country at this particular time in history is probably the best example of that. What happens is, is that we are in situations where everybody would agree that force is necessary. What they disagree is how it was applied, how long it was applied, the choice of option. And so as a result of that, we can't allow the behaviors, the looting and the, and the violence and the disruption of the community to continue. But on the other hand, we don't want to, to injure these people that, in their minds are at least, are legitimate protesters. And that was one of the things that we would recommend right from the beginning, is use the correct terminology. We do not use force against protesters. We use force against looters and, via, and, and rioters and things like that. 
Another one is that they're less likely to raise public outcry. Uh, as an example, one of the things that happens is, is that we are going to be criticized regardless of how well the force is used and how mild it is. Because one of the things we learned during uh, Somalia was the fact that force is not pretty. There is nothing we can do to make it look pretty. And so as a result, somebody is always going to be critical about it. But what happens is, is that, and this is the actual scenario that I gave at a briefing on the USS Ogden out, in, uh, I'm sorry, the USS Bella Wood out in the Indian Ocean when it became controversial. And I said, let's imagine a guy at a check post. He is a sentry and no one is to come on beyond him because uh, he's protecting some sensitive facility. And you can use anything you want, but it could be weapons, it could be materiel or whatever. But here's the key that I was trying to make. The person that is gonna make that decision is about 19 years old, maybe 20. He's got about 20 months of service, a year and a, and, and a half. He is not the experienced decision maker. His background is just like mine. Buzzard Breath, Wyoming or Snake Naval, Nebraska. Uh, he does not understand the strategic implications of accidentally killing somebody, but he is absolutely determined to fulfill his duties. And so as a result of that, this individual that is continuing to approach, he's challenging him. Paul, who goes there over and over and over? He doesn't have time to call the corporal of the guard or the sergeant of the guard or the officer of the day. He is going to make that decision himself. And we don't have the time or the capability to provide him the level of knowledge and experience that would allow him to make the same decision as the people that are higher in rank and longer in service. He's going to make that in the next few seconds by himself. And so what happens is, is that we have to ask ourselves, is the adversary closing with the sentry because the bomb that he's carrying is not going to be as effective unless it's in closer proximity? And so he's defying these commands to stop, get back, or does he just not understand English? No matter how you play that scenario out, without lethal force, somebody innocent gets killed. And so what happens is, is just change one thing. Now, instead of the only way to prevent him is with his M16, he has the ability to knock this guy on his butt. And I'm just going to use an impact munition because it has the greatest standoff distance. And now what happens is if he gets up and continues to advance, we can infer hostile intent. My laser engineer was a lieutenant from the Air Force, a guy named Rob Ireland, brilliant beyond belief. And he jokingly said, it provides a cross-cultural language independent signal. And we put that in our after action report almost satiristically. But what happened was, is it's now, it's a concept. Because you're right, only a fool ignores a signal that is that blatant. And so if he gets up and runs away, he lives without anything more than bad bruises. And if he gets up and continues, you can infer hostile intent and our sentry lives. Because what happens is, is that no one can make a case for a rash or an impetuous decision 
because we can say that we did everything we could with the tools that we had. The fact that it was not sufficient, that it was not effective, or even if it wasn't safe, is not the fault of the century. He did the best he could with what he had, with the circumstances that he encountered. And that is the advantage of non-lethal option. And to carry this one step further and to give us the, the final advantage is that what gets us killed is not our ability to impose force. It's our reluctance. We have the ability of killing anyone in the battle space. And this is particularly the case within the Marine Corps. And this is exactly how I explained it. But it also applies to law enforcement as well. We don't need rocket-propelled grenades to kill terrorists. That 9mm or 40 caliber will work just as well against terrorists as it works against anybody else. But it's our reluctance to use lethal force against a potentially innocent target that creates the problem. And so it's this ambiguous gray area that puts us at risk. What happens is, is that how do we know that this person is intending to hurt us, this hostile intent? So what happens is the ability to impose some type of intermediate force to force the adversary to declare intentions works in our favor because it reduces that ambiguous area and provides us either the ability to escalate the force to lethal and survive the encounter or to stop using force and allow the adversary to escape and with the assumption that, uh, and I think it's a legitimate assumption, that he was not a danger. Either way, they live. And those are the advantages that I think a lot of people miss when they're dealing with non-lethal force. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.